beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we heard from the very first part of our text how the church experienced, so this is the church in Jerusalem, the church experienced what looked to be a very devastating blow, how it looked as if all of the progress that was gained was suddenly lost when this great persecution breaks out. It looks as though all of the the momentum comes to a halt and the church experiences uh, a very large setback. But we see how the Lord is very much at work and in control through all of this. The Lord is very faithful. His plans are not frustrated. On the contrary, our God and Father, he is using all of this for the perfecting of the faith of his children. He's doing something good for them through such a horrible experience. Our God, our Father, is very good. And he is doing all of this in love. God is using persecution to advance the gospel. This leads to a refinement of the church, as we saw this morning, and then this afternoon we'll see how this also leads to the growth of the church. So not only is the church refined, but it also grows because of this. This afternoon we're focusing on the verses 4 through 8 of our text. And we read there that after the persecution begins, so verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We have to recognize that verse as sort of the the finish of the thought that was begun already in verse 1. It says there that after the persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, from a human perspective, yes, again, this seems to be a very bad thing. It's certainly not pleasant if you're forced away from your own home. You have to make the choice to pack up your things and leave, yank your children out of the lives that they're living, out of their routines, everything, and go and live an uncertain existence somewhere else for an unspecified period of time. But we have to recognize what the Lord is doing all this. Yes, he's refining his people. He's strengthening their faith. He's causing them to rely completely upon him but he is also sowing seeds for a wonderful harvest. This is actually what that word means in our text here. Those who are scattered, that word scatter, it's the the word that a farmer would use to describe what he's doing when he's out in his field with seed, sowing seed for a harvest, scattering seed. And it's remarkable when we realize that the Lord prophesied, through, he, he foretold through his prophets that this is the sort of thing that would happen in the day of the Lord. If we have a peek at Hosea, Hosea chapter 1, there the prophet is speaking about the, the great day of the Lord. So this is the era of the reign of the Messiah. So Hosea chapter 1, this is uh, the very last verse there, verse 11. 
um, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel literally means the Lord sows. So great will be the day of the Lord's sowing. Here the prophet is speaking about the time when Israel uh, comes back from a time of being in exile and they are restored. Judah and Israel are reunited together as the people of God and great will be the day of the Lord's sowing. This is exactly what we see happening in our passage. The people of God are these seeds that are being sown in preparation for this wonderful harvest in the church of Jesus Christ. They're being scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And if we had just read from Acts chapter 1, then those two regions would ring a bell for us. What do Judea and Samaria mean here? Remember what Jesus said about all of this when he addressed his disciples, his apostles, right before ascending into heaven. So this is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's first. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the fact that the church now is experiencing something like this, they're being scattered and they find themselves having to go into Judea and Samaria and they're preaching the gospel there, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus was talking about before he ascended. Now he didn't give all those details. He didn't, he didn't say, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and oh, by the way, this is going to happen because of a great persecution. No, he didn't give those details. But this is exactly what we see being played out again. This is all in the perfect plan, the providence of God for the sake of his church. Again, the church is very far from being destroyed. Instead of being destroyed... Jesus Christ, the Lord of the harvest, he is using this persecution to do exactly what he wants. Exactly what he said he would be doing. Bringing the gospel from Jerusalem and spreading it out from there first into Judea and Samaria and then afterward even further to the ends of the earth. Because the ones who have been scattered, they're preaching. They're talking about who they are. They're speaking about the life that they have in Christ. They're being witnesses of everything that they have seen. The name of Christ is being proclaimed wider and wider. Remember too, and this is remarkable to think, when, when the apostles were first opposed by the leaders in Jerusalem, this is in Acts chapter 4, this is what the leaders said. So, so they're proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and uh, Peter and John are arrested, and then, and then the council confers together, and this is what they come up with. They say, in order to stop this thing from spreading any further, that's exactly what they said. In order to stop this thing from spreading any further, let's forbid them from preaching in his name. This is still their goal. This is what this opposition is trying to do, to stop this thing from spreading. 
But the persecution has the opposite effect. It brings about what Christ intended, not what the intentions were of those who opposed it. This is like having, you know, dandelions in, in your front yard. No, and, if, and if you cultivate a very nice green front lawn and some dandelions are there, well, you want to get rid of those. Now, imagine it's, it's in that stage where they're not yellow anymore and they're white, and you say, to stop this dandelion from spreading, I'm going to just club it. And what happens? All of those little seeds spread across your whole lawn, and they start popping up everywhere. It's exactly against your intentions. This is exactly what's happening here. They think they can take a sledgehammer to the church and destroy it, but they scatter from there, and they just sprout new churches all over the place. It's beautiful. This outward trajectory that we see, this is actually a very major shift in the life of the church. It's a shift in how the church was shown to relate to the nations around them. In the Old Testament, there was this very great emphasis on on Israel and especially Jerusalem and closer yet, the temple as the, the central place of of holiness, of beauty, of the presence of God, and it would act as sort of a magnet that would be so attractive to the people that were around Israel. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is instructing the people and he's telling them, uh, uh, do not worship idols, instead serve the Lord, follow his commandments, and and if you live according to his commands, then this is what's going to happen. The nations around you are going to look at what you're doing, they're going to look at the way that you live, and they're going to say, What a wise and discerning nation this is with the kinds of laws that they have. What a wonderful God they must have who is so near to them that that answers them whenever they pray to them. And this life that the people of Israel have with their God is this very attractive thing to the nations around them. And people want to come in. People are drawn to Jerusalem. They're drawn to the church to experience this kind of life that, that we have. But here, we see a reversal of the flow. So instead of of people flowing all into one space, to one place, one geographic location, this kind of life spreads out further and further, and it's meant to cover the entire world, every nation. This is the task that Jesus Christ himself gave to those whom he was sending out, his apostles. That's what apostle means, someone who is sent out. This is how God intended to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham so many years before, generations, centuries before. He said to Abraham, you will be the father of, of many nations. That's what we sang in Psalm 72. The king whose name we are professing, so Jesus Christ, shall like the sun endure. In him, in Christ, all nations find their blessing. This is the promise to Abraham. You will, your seed, in him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Here in our text, we see It's sort of the first stage of that 
truth, that, that promise being worked out. First in Jerusalem, the church is, is regathered in the name of Jesus Christ, and then it spreads first into Judea and in Samaria, but it's heading out further. When we recognize how the history of the church, even when at first glance and from a human perspective it looks like things are not as people would want them to be, when it looks like the church is undergoing an incredible trial and struggle We have to understand that God is doing something through all of this. We can even just think for a fact of, you know, how many churches, how many churches before this pandemic situation had a live stream? And how many have them now? How many sermons week after week are out there For everyone, the gospel is being spread in ways that I think two years ago we would have thought was just unthinkable. All of this somehow is fitting into God's loving covenantal promises. What a God, what a Father we have, what a Savior we have. There's a, an image in Ezekiel 47, this vision that Ezekiel receives where the temple, uh, there's, there's a trickle of water flowing out of this new temple. And as it trickles out, the further away it gets from the temple, it gets wider and wider and deeper and deeper, and it flows into all these different places of the earth. Uh, It even flows into the Dead Sea, the most dead of all places. And everywhere this river flows, it springs life. Things grow on the banks of this river, and and it's teeming with fish. It brings life into the whole world. This This is the effect that the church has on the world, on the nations around her. The world is going to hear the victory of Jesus Christ, and it is. There's something that we have to recognize here that is very important to notice, and that's the question of who is doing the preaching here in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, And those who were scattered preached wherever they went. And oh, by the way, everyone was scattered except the apostles. So who's preaching? Who's doing all this work? Who is proclaiming the name of Christ? Well, it's everybody except the apostles. It's it's just regular Christians. It's people who, who love Christ. It's people who found themselves persecuted, they found themselves in in a new place, and wherever they were, 
they talked about it. They shared their joy and their hope with whoever they were coming into contact with. You don't need a a special ordination to tell somebody the mercy that Jesus Christ has had on you. That was something that Jesus told uh, that, that man who was possessed by that legion of demons. This is in Mark chapter five. He says, go Go to your family, go back to your town, and tell them the mercy that the Lord has shown you. This is what these people are doing. So they went about preaching the word. Now, preaching has become for us a word with a very narrow definition. So preaching describes what ordained ministers of the word do. Those who have been especially appointed to bring the word in an authoritative way in the church community, we call that preaching. But one of the words for preaching is just bringing the good message. That's evangelism. It's telling somebody of, of a piece of very good news or bringing somebody the best message that that could ever be brought. And this is something that all of us are called to do. If we look at um, the question and answer in in the Heidelberg Catechism, why are you called a Christian? One of the offices, or it's a threefold office, uh, one of those aspects is, as prophet, you confess his name. That doesn't mean once a week in church you do the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. No, you confess his name through your everyday walk of life and, and by speaking about him and speaking about the life that you have in him with whoever you meet. That is confessing the name of Christ. These Christians were bringing the message of hope with them wherever they went. They planted seeds and then later the apostles come and confirm this work and give the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's something that you see in the next section of this chapter. We have to recognize that evangelism, evangelizing, telling people good news about Christ, this is simply a byproduct of being a Christian. This is something that perhaps as a body of churches, we're understanding more and more. I think there used to be a tendency to talk about maybe two different types of churches. There are congregationally focused churches that are more inward-facing And there are another kind of churches called missional churches who are very outward-facing and very deliberate in the mission in the world. We speak about those two different kinds of churches as if there's an option about what kind of church we want to be. But we have to recognize that there is no such distinction You can't decide to to be engaged in evangelism. You can't have a preference to somehow have an effect on the nations. This is something that you are called to just as the people of God. Think again of Deuteronomy 4. This isn't a new thing. Already in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is saying, you are going to live a certain way with the Lord in this beautiful life, and that is going to have an effect on the people around you. The nations will see it and say, we need to be a part of this. They see proof of the mercy and love of God in the life of the church. 
and there is joy because of that. This is what we read here in, in our text. Verse six, the crowds with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, so they heard what was being preached, but then they also saw the signs that he did that confirmed that the thing that he was saying was true. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And this results in very much joy in that city. People are seeing what results when people are living with God. That's the function of of the miracles in the New Testament age. They reveal the glory of God. They confirm the truth of what is being preached. And for the church today, what does that mean? People look at your lives and they see that you walk with God. They see how much you love the Lord. They can see what he has done in your hearts and in this community. And this is a testimony, this is a living testimony that Jesus lives and reigns. This is a preview. So the life that we live as the church is like giving people a sneak preview of what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And it's beautiful. It hardly seems possible that that these people who have been displaced, they're refugees, right? It hardly seems possible that anyone could be more inconvenienced than them. And yet in the middle of all of that, they thought, we have to keep doing this. We have to keep speaking about Jesus Christ. They shared their joy immediately with their neighbors. This is our calling too as the church to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. This is something that we hear whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And people see this life and say, what a God they serve. What a wise and discerning people. What a God who is so near to them as to hear them and answer them whenever they call. So what's the point of this? Well, we have to take very seriously the fact that as as followers of Christ, as the church, we are, as a matter of fact, engaged in whatever Jesus Christ is doing on this earth. Because he doesn't do things apart from the church. There's some missiological thoughts that are along those lines that God is at work in the world, you know, regardless of whether the church cooperates or not, and the church has to sort of recognize it and and get on board. No, Christ works through his church, through his spirit and his word. Today, Christ is still gathering his church, right? Remember, how this is supposed to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then where? To the ends of the earth. Acts, what we're reading here today, Acts is the story of 
the very beginning stages of this. It's funny if we, well, it's not funny, but it's, it's just remarkable if we recognize how Luke describes these books. So in Luke, so we see Luke and Acts as sort of a, a package. Luke is everything that Jesus began to do and to teach during his earthly ministry. And Acts, you could say, is a sequel to that. Acts is everything that Jesus Christ continues to do on this earth through his spirit, through his apostles, through the church. And, and this story has been going on since this time. We're just on that same trajectory of the work of Christ. It's helpful if we remember the fact that we are Christians somehow. How did it come to be that that you are a Christian? How did it come to be that you are now part of the special people of God? It happened because the church took very seriously the call to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. I have a a directory at home of the Providence Church and the Devon Church and Emmanuel and, and St. Albert. And I've gone through it a few times and I don't think I've seen any Jewish names in the St. Albert congregation, which leads me to believe that everybody here is a Gentile. Everybody here is or used to be one of the nations. Once you were not a pe- the people of God, but now through the blood of Christ, you have been brought near into fellowship with God. Our lives have been saved in such a gracious and merciful way. It should be natural to our new hearts to want to share God's love with with those who don't know it yet. Sort of like being being saved out of of the ocean that you are drowning in and you're hauled into a boat, your life is saved, you are rescued, and you look over the railing and you see other people down in that ocean, I think you'd be really ready and eager to throw a life ring to someone and, and want to have them experience the salvation that you have also experienced. If this is something that we have neglected at all, if it's something that we have neglected, when would be a good time to do this in earnest? Would we have to be set up first in a certain way? Do we have to have special training in programs? Do we need a bunch of committees before we can do this? Do we need COVID time to be over? The believers in our text as refugees, they evangelized when it was most inconvenient. If for some reason this building was destroyed, 
This church was without a building or something like that. And you all had to meet in houses. It doesn't become not a good time for evangelism. The call is always there. As a congregation, this is always something that we must reckon with. How are we following Christ? How are we being faithful and obedient instruments for what he said is his plan? We have received so much from our Lord. We have this unspeakable comfort of being united to Christ. He comforts us in our sorrows like we heard this morning. He strengthens us in our weakness. He emboldens us when we face opposition. But he also equips us. He equips us with his spirit to be his true and faithful disciples, to be his fellow workers in this glorious field. Because of the spirit's work through you, people who have no hope, they can come to know the power and love of Christ because people are still afflicted in this life. They're afflicted, and people suddenly realize at certain times that there is no hope in this life. We can show them where hope is. We point them to the one who gives healing and relief in this life. Jesus Christ, the anointed king through whom every kind of person finds their blessing. And when we see this at work, we know that there is great joy in the world because of him. Amen.